Gresham College presents Symposium, What's the Dickens? The City's Great Financial Scandals, Past and Future, Part 4, Third Address, Ghost of Scandal's Future, Great Expectations, by Brandon Davis, Director, Gatehouse Bank. Um, I'm sure not that many of you know me, and I don't know what write-up Michael's done, but um, uh, for my... Uh, uh, sins, which are considerable. Um, I've been the head of uh, structured products for Barclays Capital. I've been the treasurer of Barclays Bank. I've been the, uh, and I am now the uh, chairman of a private equity company and a board director of a bank. So um, if there's one thing I've known about in 40 odd years in this business, it's scandals and how they, <laughs> how they evolve. And, and so when Michael gave me the job of looking at future financial scandals, I thought um, the first thing I should do um, is, uh, is consult a book that I've used a lot because it was written by a colleague of mine who retired at, from Barclays at about the same time, about a decade ago. His name's Alan N. Peachy, or Alan, and um, it's called Great Financial Disasters of Our Time. I'm not going to advertise it hugely except to say, because it's a rather thick read and this is quite an old edition, the latest version is coming out in two volumes, um, and has grown exponentially in those ten years, I would say. And uh, one of the things that one can't take, uh, uh, or one can take, should I say, from, from actually just glancing at it, uh, is that um, there won't be financial scandals into the future. There will clearly be an awful lot of them. And as I say, they seem to be growing exponentially. Certainly the book is. Um, but let us look at the, um, uh, at the front cover, really, uh, and ask ourselves um, just when this... Um, uh, is going to end uh, and why it isn't. Uh, the cartoon is from Punch and it's 1890. You've got yourselves into a fine mess with your precious speculation. Well, I'll help you out of it for this once. It is the Bank of England, of course, the old lady of Threadneedle Street. And the old lady has been helping banks out um, ever since. In fact, long before this uh, and ever since. So um, getting out my crystal ball uh, and looking at this, uh, it struck me that I didn't want to give you a list of 1,001 reasons or 1,001 future scandals because it's just too easy. Um, what I wanted to do was to try and sell the wood for the trees. The trees in here are the 1,001 scandals. But the wood is rather different. The wood is actually human nature. And uh, the one thing you can't do after reading this book is be uh, in any doubt that the source of financial scandals is us. It is the way we behave. So I wanted to set myself a bit of a harder task than simply looking at financial scandals and telling which the future ones were. I wanted to look for a source of financial scandals that I think have been much more than financial scandals. I wanted to look at those that I think have been socially divisive. Those that have been social disasters, not simply financial disasters. These seem to me to be the most dangerous elements of financial scandals because some do develop into things that are far worse than simply a few or a few thousand people losing some money or losing quite a lot of money. They have developed into some of the worst human disasters 
uh, this, uh, this world has ever experienced. And, um, and so on that, that's a pretty serious note, isn't it? But I wanted to look at a few of those disasters, and I'm only going to briefly mention them, uh, but I wanted to try and predict whether I felt that we were on the verge of another such disaster, something that isn't simply about losing money, but that is about damaging society. And frankly, I believe we are. What I've done to start with was to look at where we are and, um, and what the sense the conventional explanations of where we are are. If we're starting from here, uh, are there things in the narrative of the way in which we are explaining our current financial crisis which would lead me to think that there is such dangerous events on the horizon, uh, such as not simply financial scandal, but social, social problems. Um, and what I've done here is, um, well, I've taken the, 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 the typical explanations that we have. I, think, I hope my mic is still working. So debt deleveraging, globalisation, technology and demographics, because all have had their little bit of blame for the, or in this process. Um, and indeed, what are we really looking for uh, in this? Because what I'm looking for, let me say, as a, particularly as a, a manager of a private equity company, or a chairman of a private equity company, are safe haven investments. Um, if there are these headwinds, if there are going to be social disasters, what should I do about them? How do I protect the people who place their money with me? Let's look at debt deleveraging. There is a, I don't know how many of you have read it, but the paper by um, Reinhardt and Rogoff has become uh, quite extremely well known. And I hope that any of you who are interested in this subject will read it, because it is very prescient and it's also very um, informative. It looks at 200 years uh, of history and the relationship between debt and GDP. And basically, it says that once debt becomes, they choose 90%, more than 90% of GDP, then what you start to see, doesn't matter in what society it is, is a serious fall in the rate of growth of, that, of the economy of those societies. And certainly, um, this level of debt is not simply an issue about GDP, uh, about, uh, sorry, about um, government debt. Um, what we also see is that um, many of our societies are facing debt across the board, in companies, particularly in individuals, and also in governments. And, um, and this is important because the way in which we react to these um, circumstances uh, have two very different readings, one by Keynes and one by Hayek. And Keynes has been the basis for most of the reaction functions, the way in which governments have reacted to the current circumstances. Um, they've thought that by spending money, uh, the economies would revive. Now, I will come to um, two conclusions, uh, one of which is that maybe they haven't been spending money, uh, which is uh, perhaps an odd one, but I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, or at least not on the scale they needed to. Uh, the other one is that Hayek may have been right all along. Uh, we're beginning to get the Bank of England looking at something called zombie companies, which is the way in which um, uh, 
companies are not wound up by their banks but are kept in, in business. And that maybe this destroys the whole basis of capitalism or, and growth, which is that we expect companies that have no longer any economic purpose do not fulfil a particularly useful social purpose because their purpose is to grow growth domestic product. And if they fail to do so, then what will happen is that we will tie more and more of our economy up uh, in institutions that don't grow and so we'll become poorer as a society. Zombie economies can lead to zombie countries. Globalisation is uh, in some ways, and certainly in some uh, countries, and I can understand why, uh, is becoming something of a controversial proposition. Globalisation has actually brought more people out of poverty in the last 20 years than the previous 200. Um, Globalisation has been the biggest engine of social change in this world uh, for, a, for a very, very long time. Um, we have not benefited, in my view, hugely from that. But if you happen to be in India or China or Indonesia or many other countries in the Far East, um, I start a, a, a talk in Indonesia, I have a lot to do with Indonesia, where I usually begin it with, this is the seventh, eighth, or whatever it is, the latest one is the ninth, I think, year of continuous growth at an excess of 7%. You are more than twice as wealthy individually as when I first came here. That is not something I say here. In fact, I began a talk on a similar subject in Greece, saying, look on the bright side of death. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm not a great humorist, am I? But, um, you know, it's, uh, it, was, um, it was, I felt, fairly accurate summation of, uh, of an economy spiralling into a death spiral. Um, so, what I'm proposing here is that social problems are coming from our economic problems, and they're all too easy to see if you happen to be in Greece or Portugal or Italy, or Spain, or any number of other developing countries at the moment. Technology. Um, what technology... Keynes had a, uh, did a quite a lot of work on, on, in this area. Um, and the belief has always been that as our technology improves, we move people from doing cheap, not very well-paid jobs, perhaps heavily in labour, physical labour, to ones which produce more, out, more valuable outputs. And that this is the natural way in which growth occurs. Um, what it also seems to be doing, and back to my social theme, is producing a difference between haves and have-nots. It may be that this simply isn't happening anymore. The UK is probably one of the best examples of this. UK productivity seems to have stalled. Uh, it's stalled in a way in which it hasn't stalled for 200 years. We're going through something of a, quite, if the statistics are correct, something of a, 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 a sea change in the UK economy. We're actually getting less productive as a society. That hasn't happened for 200 years. It hasn't happened since really records began. So there is something potentially in this. And certainly if it's not that, it is that what is happening 
is that, that there is becoming a large division between the haves and the have-nots. If you have technology capability, if you can work in this new world, you're very well paid. And if you can't, your labour is now competed for globally. And a lot of people can afford to compete for that labour a lot cheaper than you can if you happen to live in the UK. So we have a lot of social problems potentially growing, not just the UK, but across the rest of the world. And then demographics, we're getting old. Well, at least actually the UK and the US isn't particularly getting old, actually. It's something of a myth there. Um, both of us are heavily import labour, so one of the counterpoints to this is that actually we don't. But uh, if you're in Japan or China or Russia or Germany or France, or well, keep going, Portugal, Spain, keep going, um, what you have is a society which is effectively going into retirement. Um, interesting. Uh, more and more people will retire and less and less people to support them. The interesting thing about this, I find the interesting thing about this, is that um, we're all you know, told to save for our old age, and I have done, and I'm sure lots of you have, and we have our pension funds. Um, it wouldn't be a good idea to be heading for retirement uh, if you would just raised an awful lot of debt uh, and you had um, uh, you owed everybody a lot of money. Uh, it's not good for you as an individual uh, because you need funds when you retire and it's not good for you as an economy. So economies that are heavily in debt, where the individuals are in debt, where the companies are in debt, where the economy as a whole is in debt, it's not an economy well set for retirement. So I've looked at these issues and did I conclude that these were the problem? Well, I actually, I mean, clearly I concluded they are a problem. But what I concluded really was they weren't the problem. I think the problem is not these things themselves. It's the reaction function. It's the way in which government is reacting to these issues. Uh, and I don't say this particularly about our government. From the statistics I'm going to show you, you'll see that I, I'm quite broad about this. It affects a number of countries. But I think governments are not reacting in the way in which they should have done. And I think that they may already have got themselves into a bit of a nasty position because of their failure to react correctly. And this failure to react correctly is, I believe, going to lead to potentially an economic and potentially a social disaster. So um, what I feel is that uh, it's kind of, it's the, it's the reaction function stupid. You know this great, you know, it, it's, it's the economy stupid. Well, it's the reaction function. How are you behaving? Government policy, in my view, uh, and the role of economists and all the support functions for central, uh, central banks and, uh, is to promote stable money, uh, to create a framework, a legal framework, in which risks can be um, uh, taken by people and they can make rational decisions based on the risks and returns they face. So it's very important to keep money at the centre of what you do because it's actually how we behave with one another. I don't know any of you very well, but I know some of you well, but I'm going to transact with you on the basis of money. That's how our society operates. We sell our goods, services, our capabilities. We sell these in a marketplace. It's very important 
that that marketplace functions correctly. But my proposition is that a number of assets in society, very important assets of society, have actually become completely divorced from any concept of their real value. Um, what do I mean by this? Well, uh, actually at the moment, if you, um, one of the interesting ones for me is if you look at Swiss franc euros, um, it's, it's a straight line. There is no risk in switching Swiss francs into euros. So if you're a Swiss investor, if you buy euros, if you buy Greek debt, there's no risk in that anymore. You know, there's no exchange rate difference. There's, that's fine. Well, of course, that's a myth. In fact, you'll be a total idiot if you believe that. So, um, so actually, why? Because the Swiss bank, the Swiss central bank, is falsifying the market. Um, in my view, if this was America, they'd be in front of uh, a judge in no time at all. And the head of the central bank would be in prison for 30 years, which is probably where he belongs. Um, but um, but um, it's, that's nothing to what I see happening in government debt markets. Michael alluded to something that I thought was really interesting, which is this role of, of, of um, monopolies. So let us suppose that you were a monopoly. Let us suppose that you had the monopoly of supply over something. Let's call it government bonds. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Let's suppose at the same time you actually had the right to control the price, called a monetary policy committee at the Bank of England. You had the right to control the price at which those bonds were sold. Well, that doesn't sound totally disastrous because you're not forced to buy them. Does anybody know what percentage of UK government bonds is owned by our own government, by the Bank of England? Would anybody like to guess the total outstanding UK debt? How much of that debt is actually owned, owned by the Bank of England? It's about 40%. It's about 40%. The government doesn't just control the supply of, money, of, of bonds into the market, it controls the demand for them and the price. And this is something, this is an asset which is the basis of most of your pension funds. Here is my social and economic disaster. Give you a little bit more background to it and why it's happening. Because governments don't do this out of malicious intent. They tend to get there, they act maliciously in the end. They just don't, they, but they never intend to. So this is the money supply of the United States. An intriguing graph. That slope is at about double digits. So money supply grew for about a decade prior to the collapse of Lehman Brothers. It grew at about 10% per annum, cumulatively. A bit under, actually, in the States, but it'll do, 10% per annum. Inflation was about two, a bit under. So 8% more money was created every year for a decade. That money went somewhere. Where did it go? Answer, it went into asset prices. House prices, other fixed assets. It went into asset prices. It was pretty obvious to see. Blindingly obvious to see. Um, but nobody seemed to care. Indeed, perhaps one of the most scandalous things, I think, in the whole 
recent history of economics is that the Federal Reserve Board of the United States of America stopped actually collecting data on the supply of money into the, into the, into the American economy in the early 2000s. It completely ignored it. We have Monetary Policy Committee in the United States, the Federal Reserve Board, that actually doesn't even know what the supply of money is into the United States economy and doesn't care, therefore. It deliberately killed the statistics because it didn't think they were very useful. Because if they'd followed them, they'd have found something like this, because this is done by a private company. Uh, as you can see, in uh, Lehman Brothers happens, and money supply stops dead for the following six years. So now you have an economy which you wish to grow, and where inflation is about 2%. And that economy has actually no more money every day for that six years than it had the previous day. Nothing. What happens to output and employment? They may tend to fall. Let's look at a few other economies. This is the Eurozone, less Germany. Same story. Just for the record, this is Germany, different story. I wonder who looks the most successful. This is the United Kingdom, same old story. Money supply, dead as a dodo. In fact, going down. Um, so, what happened here was that, for reasons in my view to do with um, a belief uh, in uh, a certain theories of economics, um, well, efficient markets, but it doesn't matter, but certain theories of economics which are prevalent on the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, and it's totally um, in the hands of group think. It's exactly the same school of economics as the Federal Reserve Board. So they only think one way. So it doesn't matter how many people you put on the Monetary Policy Committee, you never put anybody who thinks any different from the last person. So it doesn't actually make any difference. Um, they all think the same way, and they all make the same mistake, which is that money simply doesn't grow. Well, what's the reaction that you should have to a financial disaster like Lehman Brothers or whatever? or turn down in the economy? The answer is a very simple one, and our government got it dead right, as indeed most governments have, in their analysis. What you should do is you should tighten fiscal policy and loosen monetary policy. Monetary policy affects asset prices, inflates things. So what you want to do is to try and create loose money, make it cheap for people to borrow, make it easy to pay the back debt, and at the same time, you want to tighten fiscal policy so that you don't end up with a huge amount of debt which is slung around the neck of your population and in the end starts to kill off economic growth. So that's what you want to do. But of course you fail completely because you don't create the money supply. What happens then to the debt? The debt rises. And here we can see the UK and US. This is up to 2010. I'm sorry. I, I, it's further now, so believe me, these things just keep going up. So what we're starting to see, these are wars. Wars always create debt. But what we're seeing here is this rising towards the 100 level. So there's an awful lot of debt around. And, uh, and um, it's going to start affecting economic performance. Um, it's not a prediction, but this is a... Uh, as anybody who knows me, because I, this is a favourite topic of mine, this is actually a, uh, 
actually keep this in my uh, in my wallet. So I'm always a trillionaire. It's actually the biggest note ever printed in terms of nominal value. It actually outdoes the uh, it actually outdoes the Reichmark. So it's a Zimbabwean note. It's for 100 trillion Zimbabwean dollars. And my daughter, who works in uh, across Africa, uh, tells me it's a, a it'll about get you a loaf of bread if anybody will take it. Um, the problem is, of course, that. Uh, before you get to this stage, people have stopped trusting money altogether, and effectively the, do the, the, the economy runs on the US dollar. So actually, oh, five minutes, okay, oh, I'm going to have to speed up, sorry about that. Um, so, um, so, as I say, the problem. Now, I've done the sort of exchange between the, the, the need for money to be something we all trust. What I haven't done is done a lot on the history of this social relationship at, to economics. So what I want to do, because I'm not going to go through all that in this time, is to point you at somebody called Dylan Grice, D-Y-L-A-N-G-R-I-C-E. He is at Societe Generale, and he has written a very, very excellent paper in my mind on exactly this subject about social issues to do with financial issues. He begins with Diocletian in 300 AD, and basically Diocletian was the, uh, was the um, emperor, Roman emperor, who decided to try and exterminate all the Christians. Um, and he relates that to the uh, denarii and its uh, massive devaluations at that stage, the way it was being, uh, the, the silver content was being massively reduced. He moves on to the British witch trials of the 1570s and the slaughter of a number of, uh, uh, of ladies in the, uh, in the name of uh, espousing... Um, uh, getting rid of witches from, from the economy um, or from society. Um, bloody ridiculous idea. Goes on to the French Revolution of the 1790s and particularly the correlation between the devaluation of, the, uh, of, of money and the reign of terror. What he shows actually is quite interesting is that, is that actually the French Revolution was pretty benign up until the reign of terror. And the reign of terror really comes uh, as a result of um, the devaluation of money. And then, of course, he moves into Germany in 1923-24, uh, which is the beginnings of the, of the well, lays the groundwork for the Nazi era. And, um, and that is particularly interesting because um, one of the statistics, which I love, is that in 1919, German war debt amounted to 154 billion Reichsmarks. By 1923... The value of that debt in 1914 Reichsmarks was 15 pfennigs. The groundwork for Hitler's massive spending came from that massive devaluation of money. So as you can see, I'm somebody who believes um, that, the, that this is the very important issue. Uh, so why are people fooled by this, and why um, are fooled into thinking governments actually are, are, are always on your side? Uh, and uh, is the groundwork being laid for this financial and social disaster? And the answer is yes. And the answer is very simple. Uh, because if you look at what is happening to the Federal Reserve Board, it is now accepted that the end of monetary policy is an employment target. There's nothing to do with the value of money. 
They've abandoned all that. It's simply about the employment target. We will print enough money to have the US employment level brought to a certain figure. And it's below 6%. If you look at the um, uh, Bank of England, Bank of England looks as though it's about to abandon the whole idea of inflation uh, as the basis for uh, holding um, inflation and money, as the basis for uh, its, its monetary policy. Its monetary policy will now be determined by nominal gross domestic product, which of course is a multiple of inflation and output. So it will simply print money to get output up. And if you look at the ECB, well, they accept that, and I've got the words here, whatever it takes to maintain the euro area uh, is the basis of monetary policy. Um, so we seem to be left in a world where our central banks are now completely getting rid of the idea that they, are, they, they exist to maintain the, the real value of currency. And that is preparation for a financial disaster, and in my view, it is the preparation for a social disaster. Um, once we lose touch with, um, uh, with that, with the value of our money, once it um, loses touch with us, we, we're in real trouble. And uh, I wanted to leave you with a last slide, which shows you the sort of trouble you can get into. Because what I believe is that there is also a false belief that if you have a certain set of regulations around the way in which the banking system works, you can somehow stop this social disaster happening. And I, um, financial disaster and social disaster happening, and, and that's nonsense. Because actually what matters are the circumstances when you catch the frisbee. He may catch the frisbee, but I think he may, I hope he lived to regret it, but I fear he didn't. Uh, and that is where I believe that our next financial disaster is coming from and I believe it will be a social disaster as well as a financial one. I hope I have not left you in too sombre a mood, uh, but, uh, and I'm obviously going to be very happy to answer questions on what I've said. Um, I thank Gatehouse Bank because they're always willing to let me say more or less whatever I like um, uh, and to put their name on it. And uh, that shows a lot of trust in them in me. So I'd like to thank them. Thank you. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.